Well, Heavenly Father, I thank you. This is our second to last class and going through the epistles of Paul. I ask Father for wisdom. Um, it's been an exciting trip going through these uh, letters, learning and just seeing what life was like in the early church century, first century. Father, I thank you for truth. I thank you, Father, that as we're going through these pastoral letters, First uh, Timothy tonight, that you would really give us insight into Paul's heart for those pastors, those apostles, those leaders that he delegates these responsibilities to. And Father, I ask God that we would think like leaders and, and that God, that there would be so much truth and application of this truth that you want to impart to us that we would glean. Father, I pray that through this class that we would have been truly impacted and even changed as a result of going through your word. Father, I pray your word is truth, but your word is life. And I just ask, speak life today, God. And I pray, Father, that in this generation where there was so much undermining of truth and compromise, God, give us a heart for truth. But Lord, I pray that that heart for truth would never be so dogmatic that we are neither teachable nor filled with love. So Father, I ask, please do these things in us and speak truth with love in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this is our second to the last class. Next week will be second Timothy. And for your 411, there will be no final exam. I know I did talk about that. So uh, I, I do want you guys, though, to continue to take good notes. Um, go back over those notes. Ne- never allow notes to just sit in your Bible or sit in a folder or in a little booklet, but periodically go over them. <clears throat> when you're going through a book in the Bible that we happen to cover, don't be afraid to remember. Pull that out and kind of just refresh your memory. Um, a lot of times when I read a book in the Bible, I might read it a couple of times. I'll read it through a few times, then I'll go back chapter by chapter, and maybe then paragraph by paragraph, you know, each day. Because it, it I, I like just kind of camping out in a book and absorbing it. Reading it through one time, <clears throat> maybe a chapter a day. Um, wonderful, I'm not putting that down in any way, but for me, meditating on the Word requires me to go back over it. I do tend to forget things, and I want things to stay in my mind. Um, and impact me as a result. So I personally have found that to be the best way. And so I'm just going to encourage you as you go through, say, First Timothy in your quiet time. Um, let the Holy Spirit be your teacher. But at some point, don't hesitate to pull these notes out and say, okay, what did we learn in this class again? Okay, so let's dig in. All right, First Timothy. Now, Paul, again, has written Titus, First Timothy, and Second Timothy, which are called the pastoral epistles or pastoral letters. There's three of them, Titus, First and Second Timothy. He did this after his release under house arrest in Rome. So sometime after 62 AD. His final arrest, which was about 66 to 67 AD, and he died about a year after that. So somewhere between 67, maybe 68 AD, Paul died. He was beheaded. Um, <clears throat> so there were several years, maybe four or five years, in which he was free. And he did his fourth missionary journey. 
Um, Second Timothy was the one that he wrote when he was in the dungeon uh, prison, Mamertime dungeon prison. Titus and First Timothy, he was free. He was doing missionary work. We learn from First Timothy chapter 1, though, that Paul and Timothy are going through Ephesus. Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus, and then he goes on to Macedonia. <clears throat> and we, we, so we don't know his exact route, but we do know that Timothy stayed there. So what we then understand about Ephesus, because that's where Timothy is, is that Paul was there for three years, around 53 to 55 AD, and then somewhere between eight, nine, maybe 10 years later, 63, 65 AD, he writes Second Timothy, excuse me, First Timothy, and Timothy has now been left in Ephesus. We don't know how long or how many years, um, but it was going to be longer than Paul expected, and so that's the reason for writing this letter. Um, so we have a three-year ministry in the 50s maybe several months or a couple of years of ministry by Timothy in in the 60s and tradition says that John the Apostle stayed in Ephesus for quite some time and so we have three apostolic figures impacting this city. And remember when we went through Ephesians, Ephesus is found on a major trade route through Asia or Asia Minor, Asia Minor being Turkey. So the impact of the Christians in Ephesus can end up impacting that entire region. By Paul preaching in Ephesus, Everyone heard the gospel in Asia, it says, in in Acts 19. So this is significant. However, when we turn to Revelation chapter 2, we find a letter that Jesus dictates to John the Apostle, who had been there in Ephesus, and he commends the Ephesians. He says, you have endured hardship. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. Which, just a side note, by the way, would indicate that there were more than just the 12 apostles and Paul. Because if there were just 12 apostles and Paul, there's no need to test anyone who claims to be apostle. You just need to ask them their name. Oh, so are you, are you Paul? Oh, so are you John or James or, or Peter or Thaddeus? If you're, if you're not, then you're not an apostle. There's no need to test. Do you see what I mean? But they had to test the apostles because there were more than just the 12 and Paul. Now, granted, on the foundations stones of the New Jerusalem, which personally I understand as being symbolic, not literal, it represents the church, we find the 12 names of the apostles. That does not mean that there are no normal apostles because Paul's name will not be there. But Paul was considered one of those special elite apostles that was entrusted with the gospel. He, though he did not sit at the feet of Jesus in his earthly ministry, he did after Jesus was resurrected. So Jesus revealed himself to Paul personally. All other apostles, such as Titus and Timothy, um, Barnabas, all of these 
were not specifically those founding apostles, but they did function apostolically, and we do find that they're called apostles. Anyway, the, the Ephesians were commended for enduring hardships and persevering in Jesus' name. So they were, they, they, they had their doctrine down. They were well tutored in the scriptures. They were very faithful and dutiful. Jesus says, you have forsaken your first love. Repent and do these, th- those things you did at first. And if you don't, I will remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, I am going to remove my church from Ephesus. Wow. Jesus is going to do that. The lampstand represents the church. Okay. So this is pretty serious. To just have right theology without love is very dangerous because you are getting it all right and you are showing everybody this is the true Jesus, but he's not seen in your life. And if we as a church, if, if Jesus's church fails to do that, and in centuries in the past it has, and God's grace cannot fall on that congregation, on those people in that generation. So it's absolutely imperative that Jesus' church today not only have right doctrine, but right living. And so for this, for that reason, Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, he says, watch your life and doctrine, your teaching, closely. Persevere in them, both of them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So this is serious. Um, I want us to get into some theology today. But I also want to get into the beauty of who Jesus is, and I want to get into some practical application. Um, so I hope we're going to be able to do this, though the focus here is doctrine. It's not just biblical principles that we would find, say, in Proverbs or in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it is doctrine. However, not exclusively. So let's go ahead and begin Let's jump into this. And again, my point, uh, uh, my purpose of pointing out that Paul's stay in Ephesus for three years, Timothy's for a year or a couple of years. Some believe that he was still in Ephesus when Second uh, Timothy was written. That it's very uh, possible. Um, and then John's the apostles' oversight. That that was his. Uh, that was like when Jesus made his hometown Capernaum. That's what John did with Ephesus. And yet, they still missed. They had forsaken their first love. So, all right. Um, Paul challenges Timothy, who is staying there, to make sure that the false teachers who are claiming to be Christians stop their false teaching. It describes them in saying that they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Right off the bat, you know they're Jewish. The Jews focused on genealogy. The Gentiles didn't. The Jews did because there was such a pride of nationality, of heritage. Um, I, I think that genealogies in the Old Testament were very important. I think we can see this. I'm not going to take time to, to show you that, but genealogies were important. However, as we move now into the New Covenant, the the physical lineage is not important anymore. Whether you're Jew or Greek, it does not matter. 
You're on level footing before the cross. Jews are not elevated above Gentiles. Following the Jewish law did not make you any better a Christian than the Gentiles who chose not to keep the feasts. So these these people are Jews. They Some have wandered away from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith that's listed in verse 5, and they've turned to meaningless talk, and they want to become teachers of the law. So Paul says, now the law has its place. The law is good. We learned this in Romans 7. The law is good. It has its place, but Galatians 4 and 5, remember, the law no longer leads us. It's it's not the pedagogos. It's not the 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 the, the one who leads us, the babysitter, if you will. He is not the the one, it, it no longer leads us, the Spirit leads us. Now, he gives us a list, and if we're not careful, we can think, well, the law is for non-Christians, but that is not what this passage is talking about. Number one, he is using law without the definite article, not the law, but law, law in general. Law in general is for people who break the law. The speed limit is there to let us know, don't go beyond that. And it's the, the purpose of law is to keep us within bounds, okay? It is, I will liken it to an electric fence. You know, an invisible electric fence that dogs, you know, when they wander out in the, in the yard, there's an invisible electric fence that keeps, if they cross that line, then their collar shocks them. The the law is like that, and there is the conviction of the Spirit, if you will, when we cross that line. But the law, the keeping of the law, the keeping of the rules, does not define me as a Christian. All right? It might show the perimeter or boundaries of a property, but that it but the the, the perimeter or boundaries of a property do not define a property. It could be a good property, a bad property, green grass, brown grass, big house, small house. Those are the types of things that define a property, not just the boundaries, okay? And so most of the law, we realize, comes to us in the negative form. The vast majority of law, do not, do not, do not, do not. And consequently, those do nots, me keeping those do nots, does not define who I am as a Christian. Because... It's what I do in the positive. It's what I actually do. It's not what I don't do. What I don't do does not define who I am as a Christian. It's what I do. That is, being found in Christ and a transformed heart, it shows itself, it evidences itself in the way I live. Okay? And that's not the law. That is the Spirit. So the Spirit leads us to follow and pursue God, but the law is like that fence and it shows us the boundaries and it says, don't go beyond this. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't worship other gods. Don't steal. Don't kill and so on. And so consequently, the law has a purpose, but for the Christian, the heart of my Christianity is not the law. It's not the rules. It is following Jesus. It's not the don'ts. So do you understand? My life is not defined by what I don't do. My life is defined by who I am and consequently what I do. Because who I am, you will find out who I am by what I do. Good tree bears good fruit. Bad tree bears bad fruit, right? Okay. So there is a purpose and a place of the law, Paul tells us. 
And the law, if it's taught properly, will never run contrary to sound doctrine. Now, if Paul believed that we scrap the law and it is only to convict people of sin and therefore only for the world and not for Christians, then why would he say um, that it addresses anything that's contrary to sound? It is a part of sound doctrine, okay? And sound doctrine is rooted in that which conforms to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? So I just want to make that clear because the teachers of the law made the law central to their Christianity. They were ascetics. Do you know what an ascetic is? An ascetic is one who denies himself, who will even physically beat his body as a form of punishment so he does not do sin. That's an ascetic. He treats his body harshly and he fasts an incredible amount, all of which is for God's favor to shine on him and for God to pour out blessing and for him to be a better Christian. Maybe even, hopefully, if I keep the law, if I do this and don't do this and all and such, you know, I'll be able to be more effective in ministry. And God says, well, well, no. Now, having begun with the Spirit, are you really now trying to attain your goal by human effort? So, I don't want to repeat that. We've, we discovered this truth in Galatians, but I just want to throw that out there because Paul does. And, and these teachers of the law, they were missing it, and they were getting caught up in all of these controversial issues of the law. I want us to see something here in the next section of chapter 1. Paul um, is kind of laying the very foundation for Timothy as far as why he is even there. You see, the law is not the, centra- is not the central portion of my life as a Christian. It is God himself and his grace that he poured out upon me. That is central. I live my life by grace. The word mercy in this next section is found two times, grace once and unlimited patience once. And so the focus here truly is on God's mercy, grace, patience in view of Paul's sin. What does Paul call himself? He gives himself a label. I am what? The worst? The worst of sinners. The worst of sinners. It is interesting that he puts it in the present tense. Now, when we went through Romans 7, we saw why he did that. Because even in Romans 7, he says the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Present tense. I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave under sin. And we saw that that section of Romans 7 did not apply to Paul as a Christian, Because no Christian is sold as a slave under sin. Actually, the entire book of Romans teaches the exact opposite of that. Okay, Galatians, the exact opposite of that. It's not that we are slaves anymore, but rather we stumble into sin and now don't give place to the flesh. So he uses the present tense as a principle, a universal principle in Romans 7. Here, he uses it as this idea, though I am, like this is a principle, this concept of being the worst of sinners, God's grace. It's not just that God was good to me in the past and forgave me, but me, 
Even though grammatically it was in the past, Paul is not confessing to Timothy in 63, 4, 5 AD that he at that time was the worst of all sinners. He absolutely was not. If he was, he should not be an apostle. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. But he is, he's wanting to contrast the grace of God that met him when he was converted and has now called him out of that and as this sinner completely forgiven. And my point to you is this. I don't care what we have done either as a non-Christian or even as a Christian falling into sin. God's grace was so abundantly poured out upon Paul. Do you really think that there is ever a sin you could do that God could not forgive? Absolutely not. Never. Paul, the worst of sinners, was not only forgiven, but he was called and ended up being perhaps one of the most effective men in ministry in all of history. That is God's grace. That's his mercy. That's his abundant patience. Yes, Rose. Okay, he is using himself, just like he did in Romans 7, he's using himself right. as the subject, but it, it's, a, it's a principle. It seems like something that people already said at that time. This looks like a, um, what's it called? Not a creed, but like a, maybe a hymn. A confession of some sort. Okay. Um, like maybe this was something that people said back then, because whenever he says this is a trustworthy statement, he always goes into this kind of... Right. I, I think, though, consider this, I think that the trustworthy saying is this. But it's even Christ Jesus that. came into the world to save sinners. Right, but then right after that, he goes into, he keeps talking, and he says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it just, it feels like that's still a part of it. Okay. Uh, he does that also, by the way, at the uh, end, towards the end of, of chapter six. I do think, though, he's being personal here. Um, I do think that he is, this is a personal confession of his. Um, but regardless, a principle, an abiding principle that God, God's grace can overcome, forgive the worst of sinners and use them to the fullest extent. I want you to just latch on to that. Whenever the devil beats you up with lies and unworthiness, and, you know, the devil is so good at half-truths. I just want you to know, he's so good at half-truths. He can point out your sin. Did you sin? Yes, you did. But he leaves it at that. He forgets the cross, and he wants you to forget the cross too. Um, the very fact that... Um, that I am unworthy is a true statement. I, in and of myself, Mike Curtis, am completely unworthy. But guess what, devil? I am in Christ. And because I am in Christ and he is fully worthy, I find myself worthy in Christ. Not me personally, but the very fact that I'm in Christ. Now I am worthy because Christ makes me worthy. So do you see, the devil speaks half half truths. You're unworthy. You have sinned. You're unfit. All of these things could be true, but I am in Christ, and because of that, it's all false. So, again, God's grace, mercy, unlimited patience is poured out, not just upon Paul, but as a principle upon all of us. Okay?
I want us to see something here at the very end. He says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction that is, number one, rebuke those who are teaching false doctrine and make sure that the core of what you teach is the gospel, the heart of which is God's grace. The fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. So that by following them, that is the prophecies, following the prophecies, following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Remember, faith and a good conscience. Go back to verse, uh, chapter one, verse five. Um, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. <clears throat> so he, he just didn't reiterate heart, but he did reiterate faith and a good conscience. What prophecies? What prophecies were given to Timothy? I think we can kind of, it's, it would be fair enough to speculate because he mentions in chapter 4, more than likely the time in which these prophecies about his life came out. So let's turn to chapter 4, towards the very end there in verse 14. <clears throat> he says, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So the body of elders laid their hands on him and they uh, there was a prophetic word that came out and as that prophetic word came out, then a, a gift was imparted to Timothy. Okay, so do you see that? Um, if you go to 2 Timothy 1.6, it says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So if we take all three of these verses together... Apparently, Paul was amongst the, those elders, that body of elders, that laid their hands on him. Um, there, Paul very well may have been the one to give that prophetic word, and through Paul, that gift was given. Now, the, the immediate context is preaching and teaching. Um, and so it may be an evangelistic gift, it may be a, a preaching gift, or it might just simply be the apostolic gifting, which would unite a number of different gifts, such as leadership, um, even the prophetic, together. And so Timothy, once they had laid hands on him, prophecy had come out, a gift, such as the gift of apostleship, was given to him, then... He was sent out, no doubt, with Paul, commissioned with him to be able to serve. Now, we don't know when this came. We don't know if Timothy was serving more as an understudy, but at some point, hands are laid on, and we use the term ordained. They laid hands on them. The apostles, for example, in Acts 6, the seven men that served I'm just going to call them deacons, all right, if you don't mind. 
They were brought forth and the apostles laid hands on them and prayed over them. Okay? That is like a commissioning. We use the term ordination. So if it's okay to use that term, this is basically talking about Timothy's ordination. Hands laid on him. He's even instructed in chapter 5, don't lay hands on anyone too quickly. That's not for healing. That's for setting them apart ordaining them for leadership in the church, okay? So these prophecies, though, that were given to him during this time, and maybe some others outside of this time, I don't want to speculate too much, but these prophecies, he's challenging them, hold on to these prophecies. These prophecies were from the Lord, okay? They impacted Timothy's life. Don't forget about them. But these prophecies were not scripture. But all prophecies are to be weighed by scripture. And they came with to Timothy with authority. Okay? Um, I want to caution people who would say prophecies are not for today, who would somehow want to say that um, prophecies are always scripture. They certainly are not. Um, and so... Prophecies occur today. They are still weighed by Scripture today as they were back then. Prophecies were not just simply new revelation. Okay? If, if, if a prophecy is new revelation, how do you test new revelation? You can't. It's new. Okay? It's new. What, what do you test it with? You might be able to test aspects of it, but if it's new, it's new. You can't test it. If you can test it, then it's not new. All right, anyway, so these prophecies were very highly impactful for Timothy, and he said, don't give up on them. Two men, he mentions, have given up, not on their prophecies, because that's not what um, these, do you see in verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19, some have rejected these, it's not these prophecies, but these referring to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected faith and a good conscience, okay? And so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Just a few things on this. Hymenaeus and Alexander are both mentioned again in 2 Timothy. I think it's fair to say that they're probably the same person. It's possible that they're not. But they are Hymenaeus is mentioned along with another gentleman that we'll see next week, Philetus. They denied the resurrection, said it had already come, which would be a Gnostic teaching that there's only a spiritual resurrection and not a physical resurrection that awaits us. Um, Or just simply that there is only a spiritual awakening and when we die, that's it. So we're not exactly sure what this teaching consisted of, but they did believe the resurrection had already taken place and they undermined the faith of many people. And so Hymenaeus got into this type of teaching. It was godless chatter, maybe based on myth or old wives' tales. Um, He is rebuked by Paul to do this and Paul himself handed him over to Satan to be taught a lesson. Who do you do that to? Do you remember? 
Who do you hand over to Satan to be taught a lesson? There's only one type of person that we know of. It is someone who has been disfellowshipped, who claims to be a brother. It's not that they aren't, but it's that they are a brother, or so they claim, and they've been caught up in sin. And the desire is, as they are turned over to Satan, Satan teaches them a lesson. They hate it. They realize that this is God's judgment, and they come back into the faith. But Hymenaeus and Alexander have shipwrecked their faith. I want you to see, and I don't see any other way around this, but their faith was a genuine faith. Their faith was a real faith. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't even care about the sh- their shipwrecked faith. Their shipwrecked, their, their faith was, was not, not foundational. It, 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 it was false. It was fake. It was flimsy. It was sand. But no, their faith was genuine. It was real. And they shipwrecked it because they got caught up in these controversial issues that simply fed their pride. We see this challenge in chapter four. They're actually called Demonic teachings, that is, teachings of demons. Let me be blunt here. A demon taught Hymenaeus and Alexander what they taught. A demon did. That is the clear implication from chapter 4, verse 1. They wandered from the truth, shipwrecked their faith, and... Is it possible that they recovered? I don't know. It, it sounds as if they had completely turned away from Christ and the truth. We'll find out one day. But I, I just want to caution you. When you hear teachings that you're not familiar with, you make sure you weigh them. Weigh them well. Um. Last week, we got into some controversial issues that I just said, you know what? Stay away from these types of things. Is the fire of hell real? Well, if the fire is real, then how is it, and the fire is in hell, then how is it that hell is compared to outer darkness? Fire gives light, but in hell, there's no light. It's called outer darkness. So some theologians have just gotten into this and they have made silly statements like fire is metaphorical. Well, number one, the fire of hell exists whether we are there or or people are there or not. The fires of the lake of fire are there when people at the end of the age are thrown into it. They're not thrown into it and then suddenly the fire ignites, which tells me that this fire has, it, it doesn't, the people are not its fuel, okay? Um, secondly, fire, this type of fire is eternal. What fire do we know that's eternal? When Gideon put his staff, when Gideon put the sacrifice on the rock, the angel touched the rock and fire came from the rock. There was no fuel there, okay? We don't know of any fuel in, in hell. It's just there. We don't know of any fuel that was on that rock. It was just there. And it says fire came up from the rock. There was no wood. It was just fire from the rock. 
but it was fire. It wasn't metaphorical fire. It was real fire. If you put your hand in it, it would burn just like it burned up the lamb or, or the, the goat. So I just avoid the silliness of these types of arguments that people, that people say hell is real. It is a real place. It is not a metaphor. The fires of hell are real, though they have a different nature. Apparently that this fire, though it is hot, does not give off light. Okay. Yet the fire that burned on that rock is very different than the fire we know. But I tell you what, it burned up that sacrifice. All right. So uh, just a challenge. Let's be really careful because there are so many different teachings that are out there. Honestly, a number of them coming from England because England has toyed with liberalism. And a number of the people there have good men have have catered to that. Um, So, again, caution. Let's go into chapter two. Um, chapter two, then Paul addresses issues that are in the church. So he speaks to this. I want us, because we don't have a whole lot of time, I'm, I'm going to skip all the way down to where it says here, and it's a, it's a controversial passage, and I don't think that should, that we should shy away from it, but it is a very strongly compromised passage in our day. Okay. It started first with the liberals and this teaching has now crept into very conservative churches. And it is this verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, the question I want us to deal with most specifically is what does he mean to teach that he does not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Um, In our day, again, it started in the liberal churches and then it has now crept into many, many very conservative churches. And that is that this is based on a cultural circumstance. The women in Ephesus were not well-trained, and consequently, they should not have positions of leadership. Though they might be very outgoing, still do not give them positions of leadership. And so consequently, the teaching is, this is cultural. It was for the women in Ephesus, maybe other cities, but especially the women in Ephesus. Um, But now in our day, with women being educated, this does not apply. Now, first of all, we need to ask the question, where do we see that in here? Where do we see anything that smacks of culture here? Where does it talk about them not being educated so? And Paul never substantiates, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. He doesn't substantiate it with because they've not been taught the truth. They're not well educated. He doesn't do that. Um, the main thing, as I say, is that, is that the examples that are given of Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. They say that those are simply illustrations. That the fact that way back in the day, Adam was formed first and consequently was the teacher, that is just simply used as an illustration. The fact 
that Eve stumbled into sin is used as an illustration. Apparently, though, it's used as an illustration because Eve was not well educated. But where do we get that conclusion from? Adam was formed first, and then Eve. You see, that's not there. That does not. That doesn't give me an illustration of why a woman shouldn't teach. As a matter of fact, it gives me a, a principle. Gives me a principle rooted in creation before the fall. There is there is something about man being formed first, and in that relationship with woman being then given the preeminence. Not being superior to her, simply that when it comes to authority, the man has been placed in as the head. Always remember, understand this: that that when we look at the church and we look at spiritual things, they are a mirror of what happens in the natural. Okay, what happens in the natural is the man and woman relationship, and the man is the head of the home. What happens in the spiritual in the church is the very same thing, and so. In First Corinthians eleven, he uses this concept of man being formed first, and so here as well. And so there is a, a deference, a, a a place of authority that the man is given. That doesn't mean he dominates or dom- domineers or he rules harshly. It doesn't mean that whatsoever. It doesn't mean that a woman is is not given the gift of teaching. My wife has been given a marvelous gift of teaching. It just has its context. Okay, and that context is not the pulpit. Now I'm jumping ahead of myself with a conclusion there, so I don't want to do that, but throwing that out there. So these two things: the fact that man was formed first, not and then Eve, and that it was the woman who was deceived, and so sinned, and not Adam. Though Adam did sin, he was not deceived. Okay, based on these two principles, they're not illustrations. Based on these two principles. They substantiate Paul's conclusion: I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Now, here's what I want us to do: to dig into this just a little bit. Right before it, it says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Then he gives that principle, and then he concludes the principle: I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. With this, she must be silent. Quietness, full submission. Silence. If we understand these concepts of why Paul tells, encourages them be quiet and learn in full submission, she must be silent. When we understand this, I think we're going to understand the context then for that charge. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. So to do that, we're going to need to see another illust- another example of this in First Corinthians fourteen. We looked at it. So I'm going to be brief with my treatment of it, but in First Corinthians 14, this is going to be review for you. Turn there with me, First Corinthians 14, starting with verse 33. First Corinthians 14, verse 33. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints. Women should remain silent in the churches. Now we have already been taught by Paul in this that women prayed and women prophesied. I would venture to say that there was not an end to that. They they moved in word of wisdom, word of knowledge, healings. Why not? 
That wasn't just exclusively men, tongues, interpretations. And so they exercised the gifts of the Spirit. They prayed publicly. And again, this is in a public setting. And then they are told, not only should they uh, remain silent in the churches, they are not allowed to speak. And it's contrasted with this, but must be in submission, as the law says. So obviously, when he is talking about speaking, he is talking about, number one, speaking publicly. Not that once you come in that front door, you can't say a word. Zip the lips. If you say a word, you are acting out of, you are acting out of, you are acting contrary to submission. He, he's not saying that. Because of course, when women came in, they talked. He is talking about the public setting of teaching. That is the context here. So do you see that? The public setting is where there is now teaching. Um, when there's teaching, that's when they remain silent. Okay? The, Yes. So the questions, though, came during uh, during the teaching. The Jewish tradition, it's very possible that the Corinthians followed that, was to separate the man, the men from the women as they learned. Now, in doing that, when a wife would ask her husband a question across the room, that would become very disruptive. It could even become disruptive if she's sitting close to him with the kids, maybe even next to him, and constantly asking questions. It's murmuring and it's it's creating a, a, a hum. And if you have several of them doing that, it's going to become disruptive. Now, is the problem their lack of education? The answer would be yes, but that is why they are to remain silent not be not for not for the reason that they should not teach or have authority over a man. The context here is in the public setting of teaching. That's why they should remain silent. Okay? I would venture to say that if educated women entered into the service, they would still be asked not to ask questions, okay? Because it would create a disturbance. So educated or not, that's that's not the issue here. It's the very fact that they're asking questions in the context of public teaching. So in the context of public teaching, let's now take that back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. The context of silence and quietness and learning in full submission is in the public teaching context. So when he says, I don't, in that public setting of teaching, I don't permit a woman to teach and I don't permit a woman to have authority. Okay. Now I'm mentioning this context strongly because if we take this out of that context, we could blanket say, number one, women, when you walk through that front door, don't say a word. So how do you communicate to your kids? You can't pray, you can't prophesy, but Paul obviously says they can. Secondly, to ha- not to have authority in any way over a man, then that would mean women could not oversee a children's ministry because men are going to volunteer serving in that, 
And if she cannot give direction to that man, then what, what, she, she can't lead. She can't lead a ministry. Okay. She would not be able to, um, be an event coordinator because people serving in that would be men. She would not be able to be a worship leader. Again, in the context of public teaching, these three examples I give, they're not there. Children's ministry leader, worship leader, and then the event coordinator, that's not in the context of public teaching. So I would say because this challenge not to teach or have authority over men is sandwiched between this between these challenges silence quietness and that is because it's the context is public teaching that's where we need to understand these challenges i do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man in the context of public teaching who then does it is always the elder so paul then moves into chapter 3 talking about the qualifications for an elder. Okay. Questions? Yeah. So, I, like, I agree with you completely, but the notes in my Bible say, and I'm just wondering like, what, how they're getting to it. How, like, how are they drawing this conclusion? So, in 1 Timothy 2, it says, let the women, and in the notes it says, who are new converts? So it's not okay, saying yeah, all women, but just that, new that's converts. that's speculation. Okay. Sorry. And then yeah. In 1 I mean, there's truly no indication that they're new converts. Okay. We don't know that. Okay. And then First Timothy it says, "For God is God of harmony." Okay. The women should be respectfully silent. And in the notes it says, "During the evaluation of prophecy," so it doesn't address teaching. So why are they why are they choosing to only? Because the context right before that is he's talking about the gift of tongues and prophecy. Now he moves in, now he moves into another section of his teaching that he says, ask questions at home. Now I'm just wondering where, where does that go as a, what's the conclusion then of its notes? That's that's just the note it has in, within the passage. Okay, like it adds that note. So it says the passage literally reads on the screen: the women should be respectfully silent, and then the note adds during the evaluation of prophecy in the meetings, and that finishes that sentence. Okay. Um, it is just the prophets, though, who are to weigh it, weigh the words, so they would remain silent regardless. Right. And and many men would remain silent too. Right, and it says that they are not allowed to inter- interrupt, but are to be in a support role, as in fact the law teaches. Okay, well, I, yeah. I was just wondering like, why people. Yeah, so um, th- th- there's. Okay, I think I addressed the prophecy aspect. The new convert is speculation. Um, anyway, so any other comments or questions with regard to that? All right. So there are plenty of opportunities for women to teach and exercise authority, just not in the context of public teaching where there are men and women present, okay? Um, and I hope as a church we are reflecting that accurately. Uh, I, I'm open to being corrected. Um, it, it, this is not real specific, 
And so we do the best we can in understanding this directive and then how to apply it as well. Okay? Question, comment? Sure. Once she starts teaching, it's in the congregation and it becomes a place, a format then for teaching. And so it now shifts from leading worship to a public teaching. And so she shouldn't. Now, she can exhort. She can prophesy. She needs to be careful, though. And and honestly, you know, Meredith and I have discussions every now and then about this. Um, and, and, and it's hard as you're leading worship or any woman that might lead worship on a Wednesday night, you know, where does that suddenly start slipping into teaching? It's, it's hard. Okay. It's hard. I'm sure there are times in which we have blown it, but we, in, in humility before God, and Meredith has always been teachable on this as she and I have dialogued about it. And there have been times in which I said, we know we want to be careful here. Um, she's always been totally um, humble and teachable about it. And I hope I have been as well. And this is just not easy. There are some times in which it's really clear in which they start teaching. and we Okay, let, we want to be careful there. Okay. We don't come down with a hammer ever. That, that's, that's not our goal. Okay. Um, as a matter of fact, I think that would be the, the challenge where husbands should not treat their wives harshly. We don't want to do that. If, if a wife sins, he still doesn't treat her harshly. He treats her lovingly. Okay? So this, this subject is deep. It is not super clear in Scripture. I believe the directive is, but how it's applied, not, not as much so. Chapter 3. I want you to see something here in verse 1. because, And I'm going to mention this because there are some who are, are going to be called to full-time ministry, to, or let me just say this, to being an overseer, which, by the way, does not mean full-time ministry. Um. We are going to be having elders, overseers, pastors in our church who will not be on staff. And that's fine. Okay. So some apostles labored and were paid for it and some were not. There were times in which Barnabas and Paul were not. Uh, Peter, however, took his wife with him, itinerant ministry, and he was paid. So we are not aware of any side job that Peter did. First Corinthians nine tells us he had a wife. So, which is contra the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the established doctrine of <clears throat> excuse me the Roman Catholic Church that says they shouldn't be married. Which may I say this? And I want to be careful here, but I will be blunt. First Timothy four says the directives not to marry is one of the doctrines of demons. All right. And so we want to be really careful. We do not ever lay down a doctrine, do not marry. 1 Corinthians 7, if we think Paul is saying don't marry, we are seriously mistaken because he would contradict himself in 1 Timothy 4. But Paul okay. said it's better not marry. It's better to be single than married. So we can pursue that's cool. Well, uh, again, that's if you take it out of context. Due to the crisis at hand, he says, he gives that directive. Okay, due to the crisis at hand. And I don't want to repeat what I said when we went through 1 Corinthians, but just go back in your notes, reflect upon what was shared or ask someone um, and refresh your memory. But 
when we start laying down a dogmatic do not marry, we are entering into the doctrine of demons. That is what Paul states right there in chapter 4. Okay? Um, And Paul did not do that. He did not say do not marry. He said it's better in view of the present crisis. But he never laid down this directive, do not marry. And that's what some of these teachers were doing. And they were getting into all types of uh, heresy and moving away from that. My, my purpose here of chapter 3, verse 1, is this phrase that it says, in the NIV it says, sets his heart on. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Sets his heart on is a Greek word. It's found three times in the New Testament. Once in chapter 6, it's used in a negative way. When you set your heart on wealth and it deceives you and leads you astray. The second, so it's an intense desire and longing. The other where it's used positive is in Hebrews 11, where it says Abraham longed for the city not made by human hands. And that is an intense longing. So I think we need to understand this longing as wanting something that's good, at least in this context. You can want something that's bad in the context that it's good, And so it's very, I think God wants to stir that up in men and that they aspire. I think the RSV uses the term aspire um, to being an overseer or an elder or a pastor. Okay. And I got off subject a little bit here and wanted to make this point. There will be people, men in this church, who will be a pastor but may not be employed by the church, okay? And that's totally fine, all right? They may eventually be employed by the church, but I just want you to realize that that is not necessarily the case. Um, actually, if we were to go towards the end of chapter 5, um, I mentioned this, I think, last week in verse 17, chapter 5, verse 17, it says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church, that phrase, direct the affairs of is the Greek word for rule, okay? And it's literally says, the ruling elders are worthy of double honor. The, the ruling elders who, who do so well are worthy of, dub, of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So I'm going to suggest to you that there are two types of elders, at, at least two types, those that just simply rule, and then those who both rule and teach, teach and preach, okay? And so there may be a number of, of elders, as a, as a church grows, a number of elders, some of them are just simply going to care for the church. Others are going to be preaching and teaching in a format like this or from the pulpit, but some will not, okay? So we, this this passage seems to indicate to us that there are those elders that rule, but they may not necessarily be official teachers or preachers. And he, he says that they are worthy of double honor. That Greek word is time, and it's used many times with regard to financial remuneration. It's used in the context of chapter 5. Um, honor widows. And the way you honor them is with finances. Okay? That is the context. So he does say something interesting I'm just going to kind of throw out here. And it says, 
he gives the basis for, or because, verse 18, the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Now, the first one, the first one is from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. So it's Old Testament, but it is a principle that he now brings into the new. And then the second one is not found in the Old Testament. It's actually found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7. Though Matthew's Gospel says something very similar, the Greek words that Paul uses are word for word the same as Luke 10, 7. What that tells me is in 63, 64, 65 AD, when Paul is writing this, the Gospel of Luke had not only been finished, but it had been publicized and it had been spread about so that Timothy would even know about it. The people in Ephesus would know about it, okay? So it's very possible that the gospel was written, the gospel according to Luke was written um, when Luke was in Caesarea, when Paul was in prison, and he could speak with Paul, and he could also have access to the Christians in Jerusalem. Now it's possible that even though Luke was left in Philippi and then picked up again in Philippi in the third missionary journey, left there in the second, picked up in the third, remember the we passages of Acts, in that time he could have gone to Jerusalem and interviewed all of these people because Luke's gospel is based on interviews. That's what the first four verses of Luke 1 tell us. So if it was when Paul was in prison, we're probably looking at the gospel of Luke being around for five to seven years. I am just saying this to you. This is clear evidence that the gospel of Luke had already been written several years before. Okay. There are many who doubt uh, Luke actually wrote the gospel, but this is clear. And it was already treated as scripture. Luke's gospel was not just a nice writing. It was classified as scripture. Okay. All right. I've got, I have only a few other things to, to say. We've got about 20 minutes or, or so. Um, I want us to realize that in chapter four, and you've probably heard this passage before, but in verse 12, it says, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. <clears throat> For Timothy, I, I don't want us to think that, that because he's a young man or that he's young, that somehow he's in his early 20s or late 20s. Remember the date that this is written. Let's choose a date like 64 AD. Timothy was chosen by Paul in Acts 16 to follow him and be a part of his apostolic entourage and even called a few years later um, an apostle for Thessalonians chapter 1-2. He is probably no younger than 20 when he, he, when he joins Paul. 15 years later, he says, don't let anyone look down upon your youth. So I don't want us to think that he's in his 20s. He absolutely is not. 
He is either between the age of 35 or 40, and he is called a youth. The reason why he's called a youth and still functioning in leadership is because the idea of elder, the idea of elder comes from the idea that men generally would be old. And Paul recognizes he's got a young guy, 35 plus, working for him, laboring in the vineyard in his field, if you will, proclaiming the gospel and telling elders and overseers what to do and how to run their house church. So we want to be really careful not to think that Paul, excuse me, Timothy is this young whippersnapper who's green in his 20s, but he's, so he's not. He's in his mid to late 30s, maybe even older. But he is young because we would not call him an elder. So generally speaking, elders are older. Okay. Elders are the elderly. Okay. I'm an elderly guy. All right. Um, where that cutoff is though, I don't know. And so consequently, if Timothy did not have the age to be called an elder, but he had the authority to be called an elder. And the elders had laid their hands on him and commissioned him. And I suggest to you that anyone functioning apostolically as Timothy is, is an elder. Peter, 1 Peter 5, he says, to the elders, I, I write, or I say, as a fellow elder, so Peter, though he was an apostle, was an elder, okay? It's just that the fourfold or fivefold ministry, those who fill those offices, all of them are, are elders. They will function and oversee. They, they will many times have a specific, uh, function as a pastor. So someone who functions apostolically, you wouldn't call him a pastor, but you would call him an elder. Okay. Or overseer. All right. Generally, though, an overseer had a specific church that he oversaw. All right. So Peter just says he's, he considers himself a fellow elder. And so, all right. So there, it is possible for an elder not to be a pastor. He could be an apostle. He could be a prophet or an evangelist. Do you have a question? Was Stephen an elder? Stephen? No. We don't know how old he is, but he did, he's, he's only given the job description of a deacon. But even so, the title deacon is not given. The verb to deke is actually found there. To serve, wait on tables is how it's translated. Okay, but that's the verb form of the noun for deacon that we find in chapter 3 here. So that's why people call them deacons, because the verb, though not the noun, is found there to describe their function. Okay? So he was not an elder, but he was more than likely a deacon. Deacons were like Levites. The Levites served the priests. In the church, the deacons served the elders. They help them with the ministry. That doesn't mean they, they don't teach. It just means they're going to be busy, a little bit more busy with administrative stuff. Okay. Right. Um, so how does Timothy exude leadership so that people follow him? In part, it's because Paul set him in there. But since he, he may not have very many gray hairs on his head and people may not think elder material because of his age, 
Don't let people look down on you. Let your evidence of apostolic ministry be found in your speech, your life, your love, your faith, your purity, and in essence, qualify yourself by showing them Jesus in your life. Okay? You see what I'm saying here. Did Paul set him in? Absolutely. But people might tend to look down on him because he doesn't have gray, he doesn't have a gray head. That's fine. He does have love. He does have godly speech, faith, purity, etc. And that's what he needs to exude. Okay? Um, I do want to mention, yeah, two things now in closing. Chapter five, the beginning of chapter five, Paul is really firm when he is talking about families caring for their own. It is the responsibility of the church to help the poor and the needy. But the real poor are those who are in need because their family does not take care of them. And if their family has money, is a Christian, and is not taking care of them, such as widows, Paul rebukes them sharply, and he says they are worse than unbelievers. And they have actually denied the faith. That's how crucial it is to take care of your own. If your family has any members who are in financial need, you need to help them out. If they are spending money like water, then yeah, they, they, they need to realize they can't do that. And so wisdom would then say, I'm not going to help you out. Uh, there are some parents when their kids leave home, they constantly rely on mom and dad. Every crisis they, financial crisis they have, they turn to mom. Hey, dad, can you send $350? Because I, uh, I was, uh, I got a DUI and I've got a, yeah, it's my third one, I know. And, and so, you know, it, it, I would tell him, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to need you to sit in jail. I need you to think about this and work through it and learn a lesson from it. I'm not going to bail you out. I'm not going to give you the 350 bucks. It's probably going to be a whole lot more than 350 bucks anyway. Um, or you know what? We, uh, we just went on this vacation and, uh, I know this happened the last five years, <laughs> but we find that we don't have any grocery money. Can you send us some money? That is a tough one. Um, I, I, I might do this. I might say I, it wouldn't have been five years if one of my kids did this. And they wouldn't, I'm sure. They're too smart for this. But if it happened once, I would say, I can help you out. But the next time you go on vacation, I want to sit down with you with your finances. And if they don't do that with me because of pride or any other reason, my hands are closed. I don't help them. They have to learn life lessons and sometimes in a hard way. Okay. I'm all about tough love, but you know, I, I, I am more about that though with my kids 
in a situation like this than I would be with their children. Tell you what, I'm going to feed your children, but no. We did have someone who was attending our church, and uh, how do I be gracious about this? Um, ah, wow. Um, let me not then. Yeah. No, we don't. Um, okay. If a man and a woman are married and the man does drugs and does not attend our church and the woman is working full-time and working hard and the man does not, and he uses his money for drugs, and they find themselves in need for food, I will tell her this. We will help you out with food, but we will not help your husband out. Okay? Yeah, they put it for both. He wants to address it for both. Well, Who will you benefit from that? Um, I will help the one out who, because the Bible says if you do not work, you do not eat. It would be wrong for me to help this man who's doing drugs and wasting the money that he should be contributing to food to then feed him. Right, but how do you do that practically? Because if she takes the Well, we managed. So, um, it was only for one week, but um, anyway, that's just an example. It's not exactly how it all went down, but that would be an example. And... The bottom line is, we went through Second Thessalonians, and chapter 3 makes it very clear, if you do not work, you do not eat. And if someone is not working and hardly looking for a job, I know Dream Center, they say, you know what, we will help you out this one time, but there are strings attached. Number one, we need to sit down and go over your finances with you. Number two, I will be giving you directives about your finances. And if you choose not to follow them, we help you out no more. So if they don't really follow those directives and they have to follow all of them because the directives they give are biblical principles of being financially responsible. If they choose not to follow them, they don't help them out. And they usually never have that problem. They don't help a family out a second time. Rarely. Okay? Let's move on here. Um... As we end this book, um, we come across this challenge with regard to finances. The false teachers, most of them were itinerant. They would go around expecting support. Third John is actually directed, uh, excuse me, second John is actually directed to the chosen lady. John writes to her and says, those false teachers have nothing to do with them. I know your heart is good and you want to show hospitality to all people who are in need and they're itinerant so they have needs, but do not welcome them in your house and do not feed them, do not bed them, don't take care of them. They're false teachers. If you do, you are participating in what they're doing. Okay, Um, But that's the nature of these false teachers. So they they were doing it for money. 
They were not doing it to truly help people. They were doing it for money. Their hearts were wrong. And it says here that in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of, e- all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then he challenges them, but you, man of God, flee from all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. And, and I just want to lay out a challenge for you as we wrap up this uh, time together this evening. Jesus said in his parable of the four soils that wealth, he, he described it as the deception of wealth. Wealth is deceptive, can be deceptive if you're not careful. It can be very alluring. I have felt that tug many times at my heart. And there is the temptation to compromise just a little bit. And I'm just going to challenge you, never do that. Never compromise. Never give in. Never do what a wealthy man wants you to do because he's going to pay you for it if it's wrong. Never do it. Um, Timothy is in a situation where he is laboring full-time. He is going to be receiving a stipend of some sort from the church in Ephesus. And he is challenged, don't do it for dishonest gain. Chapter 3, dishonest gain. Don't be in love with money. Don't make money your motivator. Okay? Don't make money your motivator. Okay? So why do you have that job? Because I'm going to make lots of money. I'm going to challenge you on that. Be really careful. If you're going to make lots of money, what's the, because money is never an end. Money is always a means to an end. Always, always, always. It's to buy something. It's to purchase something. It is a means to an end. It might be to fund ministries. That's why later on he says, um, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, verse 17, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God gave you money to enjoy. However, he says, verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and command them to be generous. Command them to be generous and willing to share. Okay, so it's not a suggestion that Timothy should give them the the wealthy suggestions. You know, you might want to think about helping other people out. Command them. Okay. In another place, he says, um, chapter four, verse eleven: Command and teach these things. Chapter four, verse eleven: He is in a place of authority. And when scripture, which has all of our, as a pastor, that is my basis for authority. I am charged to command with scripture. Okay. If scripture gives a directive and we are disobeying, then a command comes. It's not a suggestion. And scripture commands generosity. Now, to what degree, how much that is completely up to the the person with the money. But if their hands are closed, and especially if someone in their family is in need, 
truly in need, he must open his hand. He must give. He must be willing to share. Okay? This is what marked the early church. This is one of the main reasons why the gospel spread so quickly. Chapter 2, verse 46 and 47. They were, they had all things in common. They shared chapter four and chapter four. They had all things in common and they shared. Uh, and it impacted people. Chapter six, um, when they helped the Grecian widows out, many priests became obedient to the faith because the priests were the ones who did this in the Jewish culture. And they looked at the church and said, man, they're doing it better than we can. Something's gotten a hold of these people. They're, they're, this is amazing. Is that what the world says when it looks on the church today? What a generous people. Not tight-fisted. Now, I've had people ask me for money, total check in my spirit, and I said no. And they said, and you call yourself a man of God? And I said, yes. And I'm following the leading of the spirit right now, and I don't feel as if I'm supposed to help. As a matter of fact, there have been times in which I wasn't supposed to help them out at all. There are other times in which I didn't give them money. I just gave them some groceries, something to eat. But there are the worthy poor, and then there are the unworthy poor. They're in that situation for a reason, and we need to discern from the Spirit whether we are to be a part of the solution and, and what aspect of that solution. Okay, so... Um, I'm sorry, that is a phrase that has been used in many books, the worthy poor and the unworthy poor. The worthy poor are those who are truly in need. The unworthy poor are poor because they made themselves poor with constantly bad decisions, and so they are not worthy to receive from us. Okay, you can do that. But that might be mean too, to call them dysfunctional. So, okay. But you understand what I'm saying. I'm not trying to be mean or harsh with them. But there can be an entitlement mentality that we have to be able to understand and see and say, you know what, maybe giving in this situation is not really what they need. Okay. Um, and parents to children, sometimes there is that, that exists. And uh, not a lot, but sometimes that exists. And the parent just has to say, okay, the apron strings are cut. I need you to learn the hard lessons of life. So anyway, uh, the focus in scripture is much, much more being generous, giving. When we see a need, truly a need, not a dysfunctional need or whatever you said, truly a need that we help them out. Okay. And we, we lend and we give. By the way, the concept of lending in the Old Testament is used many more times than giving and when we step back and, and see as pastors, I, I, as a pastor, I have to think through this kind of stuff really nitpicky because peep, there are people in need all the time. And who do we give and who do we not give to? And that can be really hard. And if a pastor is not careful, he wakes up feeling guilty all the time because there are times in which he doesn't give. But why? And you got to You got to know and be led by the spirit, biblically know the word and then be led by the spirit. When do you give and when do you not? When does the church help them out? and When do they not? And that can be really hard. But um, anyway, the uh, I, I, I think I lost my train of thought there. But the Bible, uh, the Bible does talk about lending, and I think part of the reason why it says to lend to your neighbor or your brother, your kinsman, um, 
more than just giving is because when you lend, you help them out. But now they have this mentality, I have to work to pay them back. Okay? Now we move into the new covenant and Jesus says that if, that, that we are to have the mentality when we lend to people that we do not expect return. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that when you receive from someone who's lending, don't expect them to ask for the money back. Don't do that. That's not what the, the Bible gives you no charge, except to, it's your obligation to pay them back. If someone lends money to me and then later says, you don't owe me anything, I am still going to try really hard to pay them back. I've not been in that situation that I can remember. Um, so, anyways. I just want to challenge us. Let's make sure that God uses us and not the devil when it comes to finances. Um, and that we are wise in how we use those finances. That we are generous as we possibly can be. Uh, I'm sorry if I focused too much on those who constantly dig themselves holes and create their own financial problems. Um, maybe that's just because we live in America and with welfare and such, it creates a mentality that just should not be there. But the, the focus here in Timothy is truly be generous. Help them. Don't get caught up and deceived by money. It will pierce you through with many sorrows. It will destroy you. It will ruin you. So, God is good. Amen? And uh, we have been privileged to receive many things. It's not just money, but maybe it might be knowledge. Maybe it's certain talents and abilities. Maybe it's other things. We use all of that to bless people and build them up. Let me close in prayer for us. Father, I thank you again for your word. Uh, we're excited about it, Lord. I pray that when we walk away from here, that we will be impacted by Paul and Timothy and just, Father, the focus here on pursuing what is good and right and to be so very careful about the, the truth of the gospel, about the clarity of your word and not getting off into hokey or, or false fake teachings that undermine the gospel, run contrary to it. But Father, I do pray, allow these truths to work themselves out in our lives and not just be knowledge to us because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So God, let us live lives of, of, of love. Don't let us be like the Ephesians ended up becoming, so dutiful, but lacking in love because their first love, Jesus himself, had been undermined, had not been their focus. Father, teach us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. In Jesus' name.